0: Glad to see you again and to be with you here. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you from the word of the Lord. It's interesting, God's divine guidance of providence, uh, how he leads his people to things. I have been wrestling in my mind and soul about what to speak to you about. Three or four things have been on my mind, and I just could not get seemingly like one thing settled uh, John asked me what the, if I had a portion of Scripture I wanted to read, and I didn't give him one. I said, He said, y'all were reading through the book of Acts. I said, where are you? He said, the second chapter. Well, that gives me guidance. I hope to speak to you then today from the second chapter of Acts. There is no portion of Scripture that is more important to New Testament Christians and to churches today than this second chapter. It is all pertinent and foundational and essential for us to understand God's working in the day and age in which we're living. There are many, many misunderstandings and false teachings about what you have here in the second chapter of Acts. Uh, excuse me, I traveling along the road the other day. Uh, I noticed this on the sign out in front of a church, it said, uh, come and be with us and have a Pentecostal experience. Well, there are many denominations today who are, emphasizing so-called Pentecostal experiences. And they are the fastest growing uh, works, religious orders in America today. The charismatic movement uh, is uh, growing in all denominations. I was listening on radio the other few weeks ago or a couple months ago, maybe uh, I heard a man talking about the charismatic movement among Catholics. And he was amazed at how it was booming. And uh, This man who was from Mexico was telling how that uh, he, he had been a Catholic all his life. And as he became identified and came into a group of charismatic Catholics, how that it just revitalized his love for the Catholic Church and for its doctrine and for its teachings. And he was so excited to be among this group. Well, of course, you would understand that the Catholic are the very extreme uh, in era uh, teaching the truth of God. I won't spend a lot of time talking about their errors, but uh, I don't think to you I have to uh, defend that statement. They are uh, unscriptural in multifold ways. While they use some language uh, that is common to us, uh, the Catholic Church is indeed an apostate order and uh, has been ever since its conception in 300 A.D. Now, so while many people use this, 2nd chapter of Acts uh, as uh, something that we all should seek after, Uh, we need to understand that it is something unique and divinely appointed for a particular purpose, and I hope to share with you some of those thoughts today. The whole chapter has been read for you, and I hope that you are somewhat familiar with the whole chapter of 2nd chapter of Acts. But just to give us some background to what we are looking at here when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And many people do not really understand the very significance of that phrase, what it means. The word Pentecost is from a Hebrew word which means 50. And uh, it pertains to 50 days after the Passover. Now, what does that mean? What relevancy does that have to us and what's the significance of it? Well, you must go back to the book of Exodus and you recall that God told Israel that they were to come out of the land of Egypt, and that you'll find the 12th chapter of Exodus, that this was to be the beginning of months with them. Their religious calendar was to begin with what we refer to as being the first of our April, the first of Nisan. And on the 12th day of the month, uh, God told them that they were, uh, on the 14th day of the month, that they were to offer up the Passover, Uh, That comes from our sacrificial lamb. Uh, That comes from the events that God said, uh, "I will at midnight I will pass through the land, and every firstborn from the king to the maid that sits behind the meal, both of man and beast, will be slain." Now, uniquely and significantly, in that 12th chapter, uh, you will find that God made no God made no provision for the nation of for the country of Egypt. God told Moses to tell Israel, only Israel, what they were to do, which was they would slay a lamb, put the blood up over the doorposts and the sides and so forth. And he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the word Passover has twofold meaning. And does not only mean to pass over, but it also means to hover over. And it was, he said, when the destroyer, the death angel, would come through, I will pass over, I will hover over. What significance it has and what how it points to Christ, how he, as Paul says in Galatians, is our Passover. He is our Redeemer, our Savior, and he hovered over his people in the sense that the wrath or the judgment of God for our sins fell on him, and he received the blow for our offenses, and we have received his imputed righteousness. But 50 days after that, you'll find in the history of the nation of Israel, you come to the 19th chapter of the book of of Exodus. And they are there by the 47th day of the month and as they are there, the 19th chapter of Exodus, and at Mount Sinai. Now, when God told Moses back in the book of Exodus, when he had the burning bush, uh, he said, "You I'll bring you out of Egypt." And I'm just quickly paraphrasing here. "I'll bring you out, deliver you, and and you shall serve me upon this mount." This this mount. You remember in the compromises that Pharaoh offered to the nation of Israel was He said, uh, you can go, more than compromise, you can go, but don't go very far to worship your God. And Moses said, no, we must go uh, to this mount, this place. It is a principle that God has set forth in the Scriptures, that there is a designated place where God meets with us to worship Him. That doesn't mean that we cannot worship God privately, personally, on home or wherever you may be. We certainly have that. But in a collective way, in a formal way, there's always been a designated place of worship. I can go back to the book of Genesis, the third chapter, and support that, but I'll move on quickly. And so they were there at Mount Sinai, and Moses went up the mountain, and God told him some things, the 19th chapter of Exodus, and he set forth a conditional covenant. Now, this is the Sin- Sinaitic covenant covenant, whereby that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel on a condition, which he said, you do such and such, and if you'll do such and such, I will do such and such. And the blessings that Israel was to enjoy was based upon their obedience. And what God promised he would do with them was based upon their obedience to their... That's, we call it sometimes the law. God gave the law, beginning in the 12th chapter, or beginning in the 20th chapter of Exodus. On through the book of Exodus, you find that God... Felt out very minute details about the laws and the mode of worship and the tabernacle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, <clears throat> and God told Moses, you go down and tell the nation of Israel, this is what I will do, this is what I promise to do, if they will do so and so. And the nation of Israel said, as represent, they said, we will do that. We will keep all God's commandments. And let me just go back there and pick up a phrase that I want to get the exact wording in the 19th chapter of the 20th, or the 19th chapter of Exodus. And, uh, I'll begin reading verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me of all people, and for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak on the children of Israel. And Moses came and called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned. The words of the people unto the Lord. And so Moses goes back up the temple, back up in the mountain. And he's there, and God tells him, comes down, and you tell the people to prepare, and they wait three days. At the end of that third day, you would have come to the 50th day after Passover. And on the 50th day, God confirmed and established uh, this Levitical, Psyatic worship covenant with the nation of Israel. This covenant they broke repeatedly, time and time and time again. This is a covenant whereby that they were to be indwell, they were to inhabit the land of Israel. God's blessings were to be upon them. But he warned them also, if you violate this covenant, I will also send chastening, corrections, judgments upon you. And God kept His word in every detail. While they broke the covenants, God would send judgments against them. And, but He made a promise to them if they would do such and such. Now, in the 50th chapter of Exodus, then. You come to a very significant phrase. I'm sorry, the 40th chapter of Exodus. You won't find the 50th chapter of Exodus. The 40th chapter of Exodus. You read this phrase several times over, which is that Moses did as the Lord commanded him to do. For instance, verse 16: Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him. And that phrase, as I said, is eight times throughout this chapter. Verse 32. I'm going to start at verse 31. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet therewith, thereat. That's at the laver. Now, the laver was a very significant, important part of the worship. Out in front of this place of worship was the brazen altar. Between that and the door to the tabernacle, or the temple, tabernacle, uh, there was this big, large, and it's amazing how large it actually would be, but it was a very large Uh, bowl-like thing which water was to be put. And it had water in it and water in the base of it, too. And in God's instructions to Moses and to Aaron, as he established the Levitical priesthood, was that he was here, that the priests were to come, and they were literally to bathe themselves, wash themselves. And they washed themselves in a symbolical way, but they actually would bathe themselves, washing their hands or feet uh, here in this labor, to me it speaks of baptism uh the la- the Ark of the covenant speaks of the cross, and then you come to the waters of bathing at the labor that then the next step would be worship and that's the order you'll find also in the New Testament, but I'm reading now back to my reading here in verse uh, thirty one and Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their feet, their hands and their feet there at. And they went into the tent of the congregation. And when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he, that's Moses, reared up the court around about the tabernacle and the altar, and set it up, set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Now all the details, pattern after the heavenly figures that God gave to Moses, everything now is finished. And that's a very important phrase. He finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Significant word. We're going to talk about that word later on. Filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel moved and went forward <clears throat> on their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not to the day of the Lord, the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You'll note the significance of this cloud. It's referred to as being this kind of glory of God, and it was a means whereby God directed and guided the whole nation. And but here they built this when it's all finished, the temple, the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord came upon that, and there was a manifestation. That this was the place where God said, I will meet with you, as he had told Moses. You build a place, and there I will come, and I will commune with you and meet with you. Now, go over then in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Second Chronicles, the 5th chapter. Now we're in the days of Solomon. Solomon was completing a work that David desired, but God would let him finish. But God gathered, allowed him to gather the the material. David takes the role of a forerunner. He is in the place now of John the Baptist, as it were. John the Baptist was a man filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, and he was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You'll find that in the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. David is a type of John the Baptist. He gathers the material, but he doesn't bring it together. That's very significant. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And So you come to Second Chronicles the fifth chapter, and Moses, I mean Solomon, has now completed the temple. Verse 11, the fifth chapter of Second, Chron- Second Chronicles. It came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place where all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. And the, also the Levites, uh, which were the singers, all them of well, and Heman, and Jethron, with their sons and their brethren, began being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harp stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. And it came to pass, as the trumpets and the singers were as one, to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy, and do it forever. Now, there are, the tabernacle and the temple is now all completed. Everything is ready to begin the worship in the temple. That then the house was filled, there's that word, filled with the cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, our Lord, right before he ascended back to heaven, he told them, in the Gospel of Luke you have this recorded, that they were to tarry at Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. Our Lord, during His earthly ministry, was here on the earth, we're told in the book of Acts, the first chapter, 40 days. And they were to tarry at Jerusalem. You'll find this also in the book of Acts, the first chapter. The Lord said in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You've heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, I say that I love the King James. I defend the King James. I believe the King James is the best English translation that we have. But it is also because it is a human translation. that just may be subject to some errors in translation or sometimes when it may have been a, a word better used. And the Greek word here that is used for this word with is the Greek word ice. And it's a preposition and it, it can be translated various ways depending upon the context and here if you understand it should be translated the word with it should be bab- translated in John baptized in water not merely with water but in water Jesus went down to John the Jordan river and they both went down into the waters and they both came up out of the waters so they were immersed what the Greek word baptized means, it means to be immersed. It does not mean anything else except to be immersed. And so John truly immersed in water, and so you shall be immersed in the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now here's where you have a lot of problems and misunderstanding, and that is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You have everybody talk about it. We need to get baptized in with the Holy Ghost. We need to have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And many people think that this is something that happens when we are regenerated that we are baptized in the Holy Ghost. That's, that's not true. We are regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you, there's a great deal of difference between being immersed in the Holy Ghost and being filled with the Holy Ghost. And being immersed in the Holy Ghost was something done to a collection of people, a group of people. Never is it an individual act. To Being filled with the Holy Ghost is a personal individual thing. So we'll try to support that as we go on. But the our Lord said, John truly baptized in water, but you should be baptized, you should be immersed. And understand what the word baptized means. And unfortunately, here's a time when we don't have the correct word being translated. The word baptized is an anglo saxon term. We say it's Anglicized by the translators, which it should be immersed. That's what the Greek word means here. The word baptized is actually, you would call it an ecclesiastical word. It's a church word. It does not fit the proper translation. As I said, I defend the King James, saying it's the best translation there is. But here's where it should have been translated: "Immersed." You should be immersed in the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence, when they were, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, "Lord, wilt thou this time restore again the kingdom of Israel?" He said to them, "It's not for you to know the times the season which the Father put in His own power, but ye shall receive power." After the Holy Ghost come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud and received him out of their sight. Verse 15, I'll skip. Well, let me go to verse 14, will <clears> you? <throat> we'll skip over here. These all continue to one accord. You have the names of the, of the 11 apostles. These all continue to one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now, it's very significant who's speaking here. Peter was the acknowledged leader of the apostles. Uh, God gives gifts to men, special gifts, abilities. Uh, of all the men that were the apostles, maybe uh, you might have thought that Peter would have been the last one to be the spokesperson. Uh, but it seems that God gives him disability and it's recognized he's always the spokesperson uh, yes he got himself into problems he denied the lord because he was so uh, self-confident in himself and the lord allowed him to fall into that disgrace of denying the lord to humble him that he would be made to be more submissive and trusting in the lord it's a common it's a problem that he constantly had to deal with when the lord let down the the sheep from heaven of which there were Unclean animals, and the Lord said, "Arise, eat." And he said, "Not so, Lord." I mean, can you imagine the, someone telling the Lord? I mean, he'd already gone through this experience. But it tells us that these human, these apostles were human beings, uh, and they were not infallible always, except when they were directed by the Lord to do certain things. Later on, you'll read that Paul had to withstand Peter to his face. Uh, and here, though Peter stands up and he speaks. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Now, why does the Holy Spirit give us that? Understand, the Holy Spirit is not getting paid, nor are the writers getting paid per word. You know, Why does the Lord put these little things in here like this? One thing to show us is that there was an official, recognized role. The church is not just a collection of people. When I say collection, I'm thinking about a humorous little story right real quick that I have to share with you. A little boy was caught going around the table as his mother had finished putting the food on the table and everyone not gathered yet. And uh, she was going around the table collecting food off of, out, off of the, the dishes. And his mother caught him, said, well, where are you going? said, I'm taking this out to feed Rover. She said, no. said, you don't take that out. You wait till everybody got finished eating. And then you take together some, some scraps. And we'll okay, got, so that's what he did. He took the scraps collected out to Rover, and he said to Rover, "He said, Rover, I had you an offering, but Mom caught me, and so here's a collection." <clears throat> well, <clears throat> a lot of times that's what we give God the collection, you know. But anyway, uh, a church is not just a collection, not just some people getting together. In the very different phrase, 18th chapter of Matthew, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. That word "are gathered" is passive in the Greek. And it means and signifies the importance of that they are gathered by the Holy Spirit. A church is people who have been born again, scripturally baptized, and have been gathered by the Spirit of God to covenant together to do the work of God and on a covenant basis of of, of uh, doctrine. This is what we believe. Uh, you know, when people get married, they enter into a covenant relationship. They promise to do such and such things, uh, for better or for worse. Well... Unfortunately, people don't keep that covenant. They break that covenant. The uh, wife or the husband become unfaithful and they violate the covenant that they entered into before God, and they break that covenant, and oftentimes it ends up in a divorce. Uh, and when there's unfaithfulness involved, there was biblical no grounds for, for divorce, uh, because they have broken this vow that they made with God. Well that's what church people do. We enter into an agreement, a covenant, whether formally or informally as such. We come together and we believe certain principles, certain doctrines. And this is what binds us together, these truths. When it is that these truths then are denied, or whenever there comes a uh, difference of conviction, a difference of understanding, then there comes a division, a schism, and uh, some depart. I've had to go through some of those sad experiences. Uh, But what happens is the church comes to agreement, and that bond of unity, this is what we believe, is what the bond that holds them together in Christ. So there were these 120 people. We have a formal record of them. Peter stands up and speaks, and he says, "Men and brother, this scripture must needs be fulfilled." Now you note that he acknowledges and notes that the prophecy concerning the denial of Christ was prophetically fulfilled in what Judas did. And uh, I'll go on to point out to you, Judas. Peter says. <clears throat> He was numbered, verse 17, he was numbered with us and had obtained part of the ministry. Now this man purchased a field of blood with the reward of iniquity. You know all about that. How he so betrayed the Lord with 30 bits of silver and falling headlong, he burst a in the midst of all of his bowels and gushed out. Judas hanged himself and and it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem insomuch as the field is called in their proper tongue, academia, that is to say the field of blood. And it's written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore are these men? Now here you have the qualifications of the apostles, and here's proof that all of the apostles were regenerated and baptized by John the Baptist. And this is significant because people want to belittle the baptism of John the Baptist and say, that, well, it it's, was not New Testament baptism. Well, it's the same baptism that all the apostles had, except for the apostle Paul, what he did later on, not by the hands of the apostle, not at the hands of John the Baptist, but the hands of Ananias. It's the very baptism that Jesus Christ had. Uh, He was the only man authorized to administer baptism. And so all the apostles were followers of John the Baptist and were his disciples before Christ ever came on the scene. And it was when Christ came on the scene that John the Baptist pointed out to his disciples he must increase and I must decrease. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so they became followers of Christ. Not all of them, but of course some of them. Wherefore these men which have company with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John on the time, same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, chose Joseph called Barsabbas, which is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all, show whether these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of his ministry, and apostleship, which Judas by transgression failed, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots. And here is the biblical principle. Here is the biblical scriptures based upon that we as a church vote on things. Now, you'll note that the apostles did not appoint someone. Now, there are different ideas about church government. The biblical mode of church government is by congregational rule, or we would say somewhat democracy, but it's actually a theocracy. But the way in which we know the mind of the Lord about some things is that we we pray, and upon biblical basis, we cast lots. We vote on those things. And I can go on later on and show you that that's what happened in churches at, Antio- at uh, Antioch, how that they voted by raising their hand. Now, <clears throat> there were those who think that elders are to rule uh, ru- elders are not ruling elders. Uh, I know the phrase is used in the scripture, and the word "rule" there does not mean to rule in the sense of which we talk about ruling over people. It is in which they are simply guides. The word "bishop is one who is an overseer, but it is not in the sense of dictating; it is not in the sense of lording over, as Peter himself warns against in the fifth chapter first. Of First Peter, and so these apostles, and you'll find this all throughout the book of Acts. And by the way, I don't know about your Bible. But my Bible titles the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. It shouldn't. That's the wrong name. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, fact of the matter is uh, the only two names of the apostles that go on through the book is Peter and Paul. And Peter becomes the lesser of the two as you come. Paul comes more on the scene and. Uh, it's not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Lord's church, churches. And it, it is essential for us understanding what this history is all about. It is a primer for understanding church government and church policy. Now, <clears throat> so they vote, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And I know some people and heard many times that people say that this was an error on the part of the church they should have waited to later on for Paul to become that twelve apostle. Well, you will see here the Holy Ghost gave approval, and that they are voting by the hand of the Lord, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now then, they're all waiting here. And that's significant. They're waiting. In verse 1 of the second chapter, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all at one accord in one place. Now, you were in the process of looking for a pastor. Here is the criteria that you need to be understanding and seek to have one mind and one accord. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And you need to understand what, first of all, what you believe and be grounded on what you believe so that you could call a man who would be a pastor based upon those truths and who would help to teach others who come in all those truths. Secondly, you need to be weighty. Waiting. It's a common experience, sad to say, that oftentimes we act hastily. One of the most common errors is sometimes when a a spouse dies or leaves, and the other spouse will quickly go out and seeking company and companionship will take a spouse quickly. Most of the times that's an error uh, because time for emotions and wise judgment. Uh, is not allowed. Time and time again, we're told in the Old Testament to wait on the Lord, to wait, to wait. <laughs> That's the hardest thing in the world for me to do, is to wait. I am not a very patient person. I'm very much impatient. But I have learned through the years importance of waiting. One of the things i put in place in my own life that i try to practice is I never make any decisions in the evening, at night. I always try to get a good night's rest before I make any final decisions about things. You get up in the morning, I feel more refreshed. Uh, You young people will understand as you get older. As you get older, you get tired quicker through the day, and your mind doesn't always function as well as you're tired, as it does maybe in the early part of the day. Well, that's my discipline. Don't make haste judgments. Uh, But it's a principle that we need to put into our lives. It's a principle, especially in our church lives, our Christian lives, to wait on the Lord. Sometimes it's a hard thing to do to wait, wait, wait on the Lord. You know, <clears throat> one of the first times you find that Bible that word being used, Israel's at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them. And, you know, I mean, they don't come after them to give them presents, they're coming after to kill them. And they're shut in, and they're murmuring and complaining to Moses, You us out here to kill us. And here's this Red Sea and the army behind them. And Moses goes up and tells God, like he needs to know something or other, uh, what's happening. And Moses said, God told him, Moses, said, Stand still, wait, and see the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> if I'd been Moses, I'd be, wait a little bit more. Moses, you see what's coming? <laughs> you know, I mean, but hard to wait. They were in one accord in one place. They were just waiting on the Lord. And there was an appointed time when God is going to do something, and it's very significant. It is. 50 days after the Passover. Now, the significance of this is that the nation of Israel, the day of Pentecost, was the day that they celebrated what happened in Exodus the 19th Exodus chapter. That was 50 days after the Passover. And so every year, the Feast of Passover, Israel reminded themselves that they uniquely were the nation of God, that they were the priesthood of God, that they had the oracles of God, that God had made a covenant with them. They of all nations were the unique favored nation. And that God's house had been established with them and the tabernacle and the temple. And so every year, and if you were a Jew or if you were a Jewish proselyte, every year you had to go back to Jerusalem to worship the house of God, three times a year. Because up to that time, the time what we're reading right here, up until that time, that was the only place where God had accredited and acknowledged, I will meet with you there. So now, the Pentecost comes. When all out through Israel, Jerusalem, Jews out of, and we just read here in the second chapter, devout men out of every nation under heaven, Jews from all across the face of the earth, had come to Jerusalem, and they were there to observe the feast of Pentecost. Over here, where a little group of 120 people were meeting, suddenly there comes down this manifestation of the glory of God. And it says in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now, there are two things that are going to be filled here. And I want you to note this. First of all, there is the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house. The word "wind" is the same Greek word in which we get the word "spirit," but it's not the word "spirit here, it's the word "wind," which should be understood be translated because the spirit doesn't make a Holy spirit doesn't make a noise as such, but he is manifested as the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now, I've never heard a tornado. I've been in a hurricane, but I've never heard a tornado. They say that when it is coming, it sounds like a big train coming, noise. And that's one of the warnings that if you're around it and you can hear it, it's almost too late to run. It's just about time you start digging a hole because you've got a tornado right on top of you. Here is the sound of a rushing mighty wind, probably like the sound of a tornado. And it fills, the sound fills the house. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Two things filled. The house and the individuals. The filling of the house is an immersion in the Holy Ghost. That is the baptism in the Holy Ghost. There is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit immersing this room where these people are assembled. And it's only going to be repeated two other times in the New Testament. You'll find it being repeated in Samaria... Where Peter, where Philip had gone up to Samaria to preach, or down to Samaria ready to preach, and people believed, and he baptized them, and these were Samaritans. Now, to understand who the Samaritans are in the days of Israel in the New Testament Jews, Samaritans were high breeds. They were not to become part of the, the worship of God. They could not come into the house of God. They are Samaritans. But God does something uniquely to identify and prove that the Samaritans have the same standing and are to enjoy the same privileges as Jews are. He has this same experience happened at Samaria. Then the third time is the house of Cornelius. And Peter was told to go up to the house of Cornelius. And he preached there. And as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit of God fell on them in a manifestation. Now, turn with me, please, to, I think, the 15th chapter of Acts Yes, and Peter is repeating when he is being brought into question about going up to eat with the Gentiles who were outcasts. There's a word that the Jews have in the Hebrew for Gentiles and what it means is dogs. Jews look upon Gentiles as being dogs and you have it oftentimes recorded or you have it in the Old Testament oftentimes we refer to it as heathens. That's how Jews looked at Gentiles. And so here are these heathen people, Peter goes up and preaches to them, and while he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit of God falls upon them. Well, let's go back to the 14th chapter in just a minute, and, and, and let me read what happened there. I'm going to read the 15th. I'm, I'm sorry. fifteen chapter. Oh, I'm 14th chapter. I'll get it right here in just a minute. Fourteen chapter uh, 15, uh, let, me, let me start my reading here. Uh Excuse me just a minute. Let me get... Okay. 10th chapter. I'm sorry. 10th chapter where I want to go to. Excuse me. Verse 44. And while Peter spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, that's Jews, which believed, were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they heard them speak with tongues and and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these... Should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then tarry they. Then they. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Now back over to the fifteenth chapter. I'm sorry, eleventh chapter. Stay right here, right there. He's called in ministry, called in question, eleventh chapter, and he's reporting what happened. I gave you the wrong reference a while ago. I'm reading down the eleventh chapter. Uh, he's telling what happened. And I'll start reading in verse 12. And the Spirit bade me go with them, loving Dowdy. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which spoke, which stood, and said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now, I do not believe that this is talking about regeneration. It is talking about a conversion experience that he's going to have concerning the gospel. <clears throat> and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Now, <clears throat> then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized in water, but ye should be baptized in the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, short, what was I that I should withstand God? And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then have God also the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, it is advocated by some that because you read that Peter preached the household of Cornelius and they believed and they were baptized that certainly there must have been some infants there and this is one of the basis for which the infant in sprinkling is, is uh, used. But you'll read here, it says, and they believed. Those that were baptized were Believers. Now, the important thing for us today is Peter says this is the same thing that happened to us at the beginning, back at Pentecost. And so, John indeed baptized in water, but you should be immersed in the Holy Ghost not many days hence. God accredited, God gave evidence, visible sign, that the Gentiles had the same standing before God in worship as did the Jews. Now, the significance of that is in the second chapter of Ephesians. Let me take you over there. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul was preaching that at Ephesus wherein there were Jews and Gentiles. I'll read in verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in times past, being the, in, in, in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called on circumcision. By that, we is just called the circumcision the place made by hand. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens in the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, Ye who were sometimes before all were made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now this is not merely talking about salvation and redemption. It's talking including worship. God doesn't save us. God hasn't saved us just that we might go our merry way. Just as he told Moses in the burning bush, I'll bring you forth to this mountain and you shall worship me there. The reason why God saves us, redeems us, by the precious blood of Christ is that we might be instruments to worship and praise our Savior. That's what's going on and go on in heaven. And if we're going to worship Christ in heaven, we need to learn about how we can do it here on earth. And so Paul is telling these Gentiles that you were far off. Now what is ta- the word here in the Greek means that you were shut out. And that's exactly where Gentiles were in the old economy, under the Jewish economy. They could not come near to the temple or the tabernacle. But now there's a difference. Verse 14: For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of petition, and hath abolished in the flesh the enmity and the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, for to make in himself of plain one new man, and to make him peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them which are nigh, that through him we both, Jew and Gentiles, have access by one spirit on the Father. New Testament church is composed is not to be divided by racial distinctions. New Testament church is composed of all who have been re- who are been redeemed and who have been scripturally baptized regardless of what their race is. And that's what Paul here is telling these, gen- these uh, gentiles, Now look what he says in verse 19, the second chapter of Acts, Uh second chapter of Ephesians. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, these gentiles but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, the family of God. But not only are you in the family of God, verse 20, are in a build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now note this phrase here. Apostles and prophets. Not prophets and apostles. Not prophets and apostles, but apostles and prophets. Very significant phrase. The Holy Spirit showing us that the beginning of this New Testament economy began with the apostles. Prophets is simply New Testament speaking forth. Old Testament prophets were foretellers of future events. New Testament prophets are those who tell forth past things, what's happened. Now, there is a transition period where you have Agabus, for instance, being an Old Testament prophet prophesying about the famine. But New Testament prophets are simply those who are telling forth what's happened in the Old Testament or what's happened already in the death of Christ. And so here, the Holy Spirit of God puts it in this order. What we're talking here is about a New Testament mode of worship And it is the words apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. I want to make this, I want to make this emphasis to you because there were those who say that New Testament church is a continuation of the Old Testament church. It is not. And they use this verse right here to say, but the church is Old Testament church and New Testament church and it comes together in Christ. That's not at all. New Testament, a, a church, New Testament church is a New Testament entity. It began with Christ's ministry upon earth. You have this soul clearly set forth, I believe, in the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are there. Suddenly there appeared with them Moses and Elijah. And Peter responds in a common Jewish way. Here is Moses and Elijah, the most highly esteemed of the Old Testament prophets. And he says, let us build three tabernacles, one for thee, talking about Christ, and one for them. Moses and Elijah. He puts them all on equal basis suddenly there is a great white cloud and there is a visible manifestation of the exalted glory of Christ and the brilliance of Christ stands forth. And When they see clear, clearly, all that remained was Christ. And there comes a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here is the significant words. Hear ye Him. You see, Christ is the exalted prophet. Christ is the exalted person. He is the one that we are falling after. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, but Christ. And the New Testament church is a fulfillment of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament consummated in Christ and set forth in the New Testament church. It is an entirely new thing, a new covenant, a better mode of worship, based upon a better sacrifice. And so, here Paul says, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Christ himself being the chief corner. and the chief cornerstone, this day and age, uh, a lot of, we use what's called a square, uh, or we use a, uh, uh, hmm, my word, excuse my mind a moment, uh, <clears throat> level, but yeah, level, uh, we use them all the time in construction, but my my word, uh, to get elevations from it and read size instruments. But, you know, we're not important. But we use different instruments. These were not common builders' tools in old days. But what they would do, they would take a stone and square it. And that stone was set in the corner. And from the beginning of that corner stone, everything ran square with that. You you drew out a line, just like this little thing here on top of the pulpit here, This a square. And if I wanted to run a straight line down the year, I'd take a string and run it back through here. And back there, I'd say, well, you're off this square right here. And everything is squared by that cornerstone. And so that's what Paul here is saying. Christ is the cornerstone whereby everything is squared by Him. New Testament church does not follow after Moses and Elijah. It doesn't follow after Abraham and Isaac. Those are supportive doctrines, and those can... Are basis upon which we can understand some things. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. We don't interpret the Old Testament and say this is what God was teaching us for today. We interpret New Testament, we interpret the Old Testament by, new, by the New Testament. What is the significance of these things? For instance, the animal sacrifices. How do we understand that? How do we understand what God did in the Garden of Eden when He robed Adam and Eve? We understand that by seeing what Christ, our sacrificial lamb, did. But God laid our sins upon him, and slew him, and robed us in Christ's righteousness. And so everything is squared by Christ. And he says, you are built upon the foundation of Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple of the Lord, in whom ye, plural, also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, he's not talking here about individuals who are the individual temples of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in all of God's believers. But he's talking about the collective thing that God established and recognized and accredited on the day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ established his church during his earthly ministry. The apostles gathered there together in the upper room, and they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, why Pentecost? Because that was the day Israel was celebrating that they were uniquely chosen of God and they only had the house of God. And here, this kind of glory of God comes down and it fills the house and God accredited His church as being the house of God. Now let me say to you, this assembly here is what constitutes the house of God, the temple of God, over here in the, old, in the, in the temple that Herod built. That, that veil had been rent and plain from top to bottom. They may have repaired it by this time, Forty fifty days have passed. Don't know. In material. All of that, though, is null. It is disannulled. disannulled. Put the, no, nothing out of that Old Testament worship is going to carry over to New Testament. Everything is dead. No more sacrifices. No more mode of worship. Nothing in the Old Testament is going to be carried over the New Testament. And if you don't get that point, 70 A.D., God completely destroyed that temple. And so you have the new temple of God, the new house of God being set up here and established. This is the body of Christ here. Here is the bride of Christ here, New Testament church. And God accredited it as saying, this is my house. This is my place where I will meet with you and worship with you. And the Shekinah glory of God came down and it filled the house. Not only did it fill the house, but it also filled the Holy Spirit, filled the individuals. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Are we to expect another Pentecostal experience today? No. God, and when the word is used, talking about that, it's used as a Greek word, which means something happened once and for all. Just as the death of Christ, once and for all, finished. We are have many indwellings of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, Be not drunk with wine or in excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Ghost. You'll read later on in the book of Acts that they were, several times, that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. But you'll never read again after what happened at Cornelius' place. You'll never read again about there being another Pentecostal experience. At Antioch, up at uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, nothing. In the book of Revelation, when writes the letter to the seven churches of Asia, there's nothing said about you need to have a Pentecostal experience. No. Because that once and for all was finalized and recognized. It was an accreditation of the house of God. I believe Brother John graduated in college recently, didn't he? Last year? How long ago was it? A couple of years ago. You got a diploma, didn't you? How many times did you have to go back and get that diploma? One. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, <clears throat> recognition, accreditation. It is a government of political action, for instance. When an ambassador from a country comes to a country that he's going to, where he's going to serve, for instance, our American ambassador, when they go to these other countries, they carry with them a letter of accreditation, which they present to the government of the country. And once having been presented, it's recognized. If it is recognized, it's once and for all. Until the government there in the foreign land says, y'all have got to leave. But until they do that, we have standing with that government, whereby we can speak and representative of our government, our back home, to that government. And that ambassador is accredited, recognized. That's what God did in his church, Ecclesia. Called out assembly of born-again believers, and they were accredited as being the house of God. You're never going to have a Pentecostal experience. You hopefully, we all hopefully many times, will have manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. And he will sometimes in a collective sense bless a church. At Antioch, for instance, they were all praying and fasting. And the church, as they were praying and fasting, the Holy Ghost said to the church, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas the work on which I called them to do. A collective action. But no Pentecostal experience. No speaking in tongues. By the way, that language, that scripture there, is very clearly shown to us to be simply other languages. That's what they spoke in and they were able to hear them speak with their native language. I wish that indeed that gift was still being made manifested, and I could show you that the Holy Spirit wrote and told us that it was going to come to an end, the gift of tongues. Paul and the, and the other apostles, when they went anywhere preaching, they could instantaneously speak in that native language. I've been to India. I've been to Siberia. Other preachers have gone to these foreign countries, and we always have to use an interpreter. We don't have the gift of, of c- tongues. I have enough problem with the English, and along with some of these foreign languages. I tell you, I've been to Russia since 2006 every year, I think that's eight times, and I've learned two Russian words, nit and da, which means no and yes. Uh, but I have a difficult time learning. The gift of being able to speak instantaneously in these languages was what God gave as a manifestation of his accreditation of his Lord's church. I hope that we can understand what Pentecost is all about. It was a once and for all action to accrediting the house of God as being the temple of God, as being the church of Jesus Christ. I think I'm supposed to speak this afternoon. Uh, Brother Herman, is that right? Uh, I'd like to ask so we can assemble as soon as we can after we finish eating because I've got to go back. Maybe you have some questions about this subject. Or maybe we'll continue to look at the second chapter of Acts this afternoon. It's full of critical, important lessons for us today. Shall we pray? Our Father, we come to you today thanking you for Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, who did indeed bear our sins on the cross of Calvary and has given us his own imputed righteousness, that we might be called the sons of God. What amazing love. What amazing grace. We thank you for the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, which you've also given to us, whereby that we might be blessed to come together, to worship together, and worship and praise our dear Savior. Guide us in all the ways we ought to go. Bless this church. Teach them and guide them, Lord. And as they wait upon you to give them a pastor, we pray you'll give them patience and discernment and wisdom. In Christ's name I do pray. Amen.